So how many of you thought that Gary wouldn't be able to lift Doug up? <laughs> I didn't think he'd be able to. <laughs> Last week I said to him, you're going to be like baptizing Goliath, man. Well, let's uh, take a minute and pray before we step into today's teaching, see what God has to say to us. Father, thank you so much for the celebration of lives that have been dedicated to you, that want to live according to your purpose and your calling. Thank you that we can take time right now and slow down from an incredibly busy week. Things that we've been involved in have, some, to some degree, taken the joy out of our life. It's just been very fast-paced. And so we're grateful, Father, for a privilege to be able to come in and just sit down and celebrate and leave the cares of the world outside, if not for only a little while, but to refocus ourselves, keep our perspective in line about why we're doing the things we're doing. Father, I ask that you would inhabit the teaching this morning, that you'd be in the midst of it and your spirit would flow through it so that we would really have a sense that you're speaking to us. Although these words were written 2,000 years ago, they're just as relevant today to us as they were to Titus when he received this letter. God, I ask for every man and woman and student child in this room that you'd give us a capacity to see what you're specifically wanting to say to us individually. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me take you back to this moment in time historically where uh, Titus received this letter. Uh, We remember he's on this island in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, island called Crete, south of Italy, still there today, 135 miles long. This particular island was unique to the Roman Empire, uh, not only because it had Greek culture deeply rooted in it, but also because the Romans would send their soldiers there for training, advanced training. So we talked a couple weeks ago about seeing this like Camp Camp Pendleton or uh, any of the military bases we might have here in the United States. So soldiers would come there for training, and then we also discovered that this is a sailing port. So freight ships would pull in as they're making their way across the Aegean Sea or across the Mediterranean Ocean, and before they would go the full distance, they would stop at the island of Crete. So we've got soldiers on the island, and we've got sailors coming into port on the weekends. What do sailors do on the weekends? Go to church, right? Yeah. Okay. And so we got island dwellers. The island dwellers, the group of people who inhabit that island, they make their place there, they're living. So we got island dwellers, we've got sailors, and we've got soldiers. And that's where this little fledgling church is at that Titus is supposed to build into. So Paul writes to him specifically with this letter we call the book of Titus in the end of the New Testament. And he has specific instructions for him saying, This is what it's going to look like, Titus. This is what I want a church to be shaped like according to what Jesus has established. So the great mentor, Paul, writes this letter to Titus, a young man we believe to be probably in his early 30s. So if you have the little study sheet and you picked it up with the bulletin this morning when you came in, you see the way the three chapters in Titus are broken down. The first chapter we've already looked at and we've put that behind us. It's the qualifications of church leadership their theology and their personal character, those who lead the church, what should they look like? And chapter 2 that we're looking at today, the character and the conduct of the church among ourselves, this is written to you. What should the older man, the younger man, the older woman, the younger woman look like according to a biblical definition? 
That's what we're going to look at this morning. In chapter 3, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the character and conduct of the church before the world. If the leadership is right and in place and healthy, if the people of the church are right in their way of living, combined together, we see in chapter 3 that we should be a fragrant aroma to the world around us, watching us. Because you can bet that the individuals in this church were being watched in this book, in this letter of Titus. Because all three of those essentials are critical to a strong church. If you want to be part of a biblical community, like our sign says on the street, this is the qualifications. It says this is what it should look like. We are all being watched, every one of us. A good example would be baptism this morning. Friends, family members come in to watch those being baptized. You, as individuals who belong to New Hope, at one point came in here as guests. The church is only three years old, so we're all new to this church setting. So individuals who came in the very beginning or came within the last month would come in and look around and say, is this a place I want to be part of? I'm going to observe them. I'm going to see how they do church together. Am I going to align myself with this group called New Hope? So in that same way, we see these individuals on this island looking at Titus, watching to see how they do church. There's no question in my mind the sailors and the soldiers, even if they were big partiers, were aware of what was going on because Titus was instructed to go to every city. So we're going to see this morning that Paul is giving some very heavy, direct instruction to those of us who name the name of Christ who are part of the church, how believers are to look to those in the world. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Titus, very end of the New Testament if you're not familiar with the, with the Bible. You'll also find the passages up on the screen. You'll see you can follow along that way. But there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And if, if you don't happen to own a Bible personally, Those Bibles are there as our gift to you. We want you to take one with you when you leave today so you have a copy of God's Word. We believe it's really important that you own your own Bible. So don't hesitate to take one of those with you when you leave today if you need to. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And this is a really strong emphatic. This is Paul the mentor with his long bony finger poking Titus in the sternum, as for you, Titus, as for you, my true son in the faith. Remember reading that in the first chapter? Titus is his true son. As for you, as for you, he's contrasting it to those in the first chapter. What we read about, they were disobedient, disoriented, people who were rebellious. So the contrast of that, Paul's saying, as for you, Titus, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, healthy teaching. This word speak is very specific. It's the word laleo, and it literally means your everyday conversation. Do you notice that he didn't say, but as for you, Titus, preach the things? He's saying, speak the things. Your ordinary conversation, day to day, in the mall, you go to Culver's, you go to work, wherever you go to school. In the midst of your daily conversation, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So he's not focused on preaching here. He's focused on the the practical component of sound doctrine. Titus, show them the difference. Get it, Titus. Speak the difference into your everyday conversation. Live it out. Let your life reflect salvation from sin. Be an example to those around you. You ever stop and think about that? You are a living witness to those who are watching you. 
not just in a service like this with baptism, people coming and watching baptism, but people watching the church in the world see you as an example. If they know that you're a believer, they should. And if they know that you're a believer, they should be witnessing the power of transforming lives. God transforming the lives, and it's, it's evidenced in your life. So he uses this word hygiano for sound. Look at the definition up on the screen. Hygiano is, is the translate, sound is the, tran, the word that we use in English for hygiano. To have sound health be well in body, figuratively, to be uncorrupt or true in your doctrine. So Titus, when you speak, use hygiano. It's where we get the word hygiene from, a medical term. But it also translates over to your spirit. The things that you speak should be wholesome and healthy. That which protects and preserves life, extends life. And Titus, this is the way I want you to use it. Speak into four people groups. Let's look at the first one of those four people groups. Verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. The older saints of this church, Scripture tells us, are to be cherished, to be exalted, actually. Scripture says that we're supposed to exalt and cherish older men and older women, the older saints, those who have said, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course. We're blessed here at New Hope to have older saints that can say that. As a matter of fact, you're commanded from Scripture, younger men and younger women, to cherish the older saints. Look with me up on the screen. Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. So if you're coloring your hair because it's gray, let it be gray. We want to cherish you, okay? Women, I know you struggle with that and you don't want to do that, but that's what Scripture says. Because of your age, because of the gray hairs, the younger people are supposed to exalt you and cherish you. So older men, what is this saying specifically? What's this age group, older men? I believe, according to what I understand from Scripture, it's those who are 50 and older. Paul's even more specific, and I noticed from a couple commentaries I read this week that they identified a verse in which Paul calls himself Paul the Aged. Look with me up on the screen, Philemon 1.9, Paul the Aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The word that he uses there for aged is the word presbutes where we get the word presbytery or presbyterian today. Presbytes is literally this definition. You'll see it on the screen. An old man, aged man, or old. So Paul, we know at that time when he wrote that, was in his 60s. And it's used one other time in Scripture. It's used in the New Testament one other time, and that's when Zacharias was having an argument with an angel. The angel visited him and said, In your old age, Zacharias, you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him John. John the baptizer. And Zacharias argued back and forth and said, I am a presbytes. How can I have a child in my old age? So that's associated with men who are older. And it says specifically that they're going to have these characteristics. Let me identify them for you. First of all, it said they're going to be temperate. What does that mean? To be clear-headed. If they're temperate, they've got possession of themselves. The word that's used here is nephalios, and this is what it literally means, to be sober Cautious, careful, judicious, <clears throat> excuse me, judicious, circumspect. A characteristic of an older man that you want to admire and look to. Second one, dignified, meaning worthy of respect. Their personal behavior 
is of such a degree that you want to respect them. Third one, sensible. It means to be self-controlled in your thoughts, in your judgments. Literally, here's the Greek word for it, sophron. To be safe and sound in your mind, self-controlled as to your opinions or passion, also to be discreet. In other words, not blabbering, okay? One who knows his purposes and is focused to it. So what people see of these older men is what they're really like. These first three characteristics speak to the inner nature of the man, the characteristic of him. But then this fourth one comes out, and it says, sound in faith, but it repeats it, sound in faith, love, and endurance. This is the way it should read, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. Sound in faith literally meaning they know they can trust God in every way. They're so old that they've looked back over the course of their life, and they can see God has performed in their life. And so they're sound and solid in their faith. And so that translates to sound in love. They can reach out to those within the church and those outside, and even through rejection can still love people. But this last one is really interesting, sound in perseverance. Because individuals, guys, I'm in this age group, if you're sound in your faith, you're sound in your love, we also ought to be sound in our perseverance. Because God has showed himself faithful, we should be able to persevere through the hard times as an example to those who are looking to us. Do you know that Moses was 80 years old when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you to lead these people out of Egypt. 80 to 120 years of age is the age range that God used him to make the wilderness wanderings happen. Caleb, his protege, his understudy, when Moses was an old man, came to him and said, I am an old man. He was over 80, but I want to take the hill country for God. My body is physically strong. My mind is mentally alert. Give me the hill country. You familiar with John Wesley, guys? John Wesley, one of the great founders of the church here in the United States and in Europe, had wonderful writings that he put out. Let me show you a quote on the screen of one of John Wesley's friends wrote about him near the end of his life. John Wesley, 83, after having traveled some 250,000 miles on horseback, preached more than 40,000 sermons and writing 200 books and pamphlets, Wesley regretted he was unable to read and write for more than 15 hours a day without his eyes becoming too tired to work. After his 86th birthday, he admitted to an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. Slacker. (laughs) I cannot imagine. Now, there is a man who is persevering, who is dedicated. Now we enter into the world of diplomacy, older women, okay? Look with me at verse 3 on the screen. (laughs) Okay, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So, how do you find, define older women? Very carefully, right? <laughs> I do remember clearly when my wife came home one day and said, Oh no, I think I'm an older woman now. Because <laughs> younger women were coming to her and asking for advice, and she thought, Oh, maybe I'm in that stage where the biblical definition 
plays in. Well, first of all, can a woman in her 40s build into a woman in her 20s? Absolutely. Can a woman in her 40s or 50s build into a woman in her 30s? Sure, certainly. They're that much further ahead. They've got that much more years of experience. I'm personally comfortable using the term older woman for a, to describe a woman who has managed her household well, who has raised her children well to such a degree that she's been a good keeper of the gate of her life. And others would look to her and say, that individual is living as a godly woman associated with godly behavior. But very specifically, this word older is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But Paul used it more specifically when he was referring to widows, individuals who had lost their husband and needed the support of the church. Look with me up on the screen, and you see it first referred to in 1 Timothy 5.9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. See, the church had a responsibility to care financially, for these individuals who were widows before the days of life insurance or pension funds. And so women who were destitute needed the help of the church. But younger than 60, Paul thought, they should probably remarry again and be dependent upon a husband if possible. But greater than 60, they're old enough to be considered the older woman. But very clearly, there's women who have raised their children and are in their 50s and have managed their household well. They could be considered an older woman as well. So the 30-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, the 40-year-olds can look to this woman as an example. So what are they supposed to be like? Likewise, meaning they've got the same qualities as the men, plus there's some task added to it. Likewise, they're to be reverent. That means authentically godly, reverent in their behavior. We're not talking about reverend mother like in The Sound of Music when you know, Maria went to see her. They called her reverend mother, the nun of the, of the uh, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we're talking about authentically godly in their behavior, it says, in the, in the way that they live. And this expresses, ladies, your inner character. In the way that you live out your life, you're to be authentically godly and reverent. And then it says specifically, not malicious gossips, meaning they refuse to listen, much less propagate rumors and lies. This is not necessarily talking about idle chatter in the lobby or in the mall or at work saying, oh, did you know what happened to so-and-so? That's not the classification of gossip. Gossip is maliciously slandering someone. It's the phrase Jesus used when he spoke of Satan, one of the titles of Satan. Look with me on the screen at the definition for Diablos. A traducer, especially Satan, a false accuser, the devil, or a slanderer. If you've taken Spanish in school, you know the word for Satan or the devil is el diablo. Okay, that's where this comes from, diablos. So what literally is being written here, don't be like Satan, the false accuser, the one who slanders people. Especially, ladies, this comes to not running down your husband, talking about your husband in a malicious way in public. Also, this would include using prayer as a source of gossip. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever prayed with somebody who came to you and said, I just want you to pray for this person. Let me tell you what's going on. And they can't wait to unload, okay? You understand? People use all forms to propagate gossip. And he's saying, don't do that, women. You're not to be caught up in that characteristic. Why, older women? Because the younger women are watching you. They're watching your behavior. We're all being watched. 
And so you need to be already living this way so you can build into the lives of your daughters, your daughter-in-laws, your nieces, the women of this church. You need to be living to such a high standard, you're living up to God's standards, and that's what he describes here. So he says, what I want you to do is be teaching what is good. Here's the definition my wife gave me for good. I've, I've never been an older woman, okay? So I've never been able to define this. She, this is the way she defines this as an older woman. Teaching what is good is genuine, joyful, faithful, gracious, wise, generous, valuable, virtuous, merciful, prayerful. Young ladies, wouldn't you like to have an older woman building into your life who had those characteristics? One that you could look up to? This is not showing young moms how to keep house, by the way. This is showing young moms, rather, how to put their hearts and their minds focused on the right spiritual attitude, the attitude that Christ would call you to. Teaching what is good in the Greek literally translates to teaching what is beautiful, the beautiful things associated with godly behavior. And this means informal teaching, the same way Paul was talking to Titus, saying, in your speaking, this is the same thing with the women, speak it into their lives informally. So verse 4, why would we do this? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. First time I read that earlier this week and was working through it, I thought to myself, why instruct women to do what comes natural to them? To tell them to love their children? That's so natural. Why would they have to be told how to do that? I'll come back to that in just a minute. What I want you to note is, first of all, that Titus is told to tell the older women to build into the younger women, not for him personally to do it. He's told to speak to each of the other three people groups, to the older men, the older women, and the younger men. But he's not told to speak to the younger women. He's told to teach the older women to speak to the younger women because they're the influencers. So clearly, he's speaking here about young women who are, first of all, married and young women who have children. So God doesn't call everybody to be married, first of all. The Scripture says there's the gift of singleness in 1 Corinthians. Some women never marry, some men never marry, but this specifically is young women who, first of all, are married and they've got younger children. To do what? That they may encourage, encourage them. I remember my wife coming home and saying, where is the older woman who would build into my life? Looking around in the church we were involved in at that time, saying, where are the older women who will build into us younger women? And so she was determined, along with her friend Jody, when they got to this age, that they would be the ones who would build into the younger women because they starved for it when they were younger. Older women, you can be a cool drink of water on a hot day to a young woman who needs encouragement. And you can do it in the simplest way. Walking down the hallway by the nursery or visiting them at home and saying, you're really doing a great job with your children. That's encouragement. That's building them up. And that's what Scripture says. that It may encourage them, first of all, the first thing listed is to love their husbands, to put them on a high plane. Remember now, first century, marriages were arranged. So Elizabeth married whatever the name might be, might be out in the field working, walk home, go through the door of their house, the door opens and see dad talking to a man of the village, turning to them and saying, Elizabeth, this is your husband. And that's it. She had no choice in it. 
So in very difficult situations, Paul even says, encourage them, first of all, to love their husbands. You actually get a choice in who you marry. In this century, they didn't. Now, because I didn't really understand how this works in encouraging your husbands to love your husbands, I asked my wife, what would be your definitions, if you gave me two, of your definitions of how to properly love your husband? This is the first one that she gave me, putting his needs before her own. In other words, she glories in answering my needs. She takes great fulfillment in that. She's always looking ahead, planning ahead, thinking, what will my needs be a week, two weeks, three weeks? If your husband happens to travel, ladies, this might mean thinking ahead, what will he need on the trip? What can I do to encourage and lift my husband up as he travels? What will he need when he comes back home? How can I build into him? Lori said that one of her biggest goals as my wife loving me properly was to take the resources that I had earned and that I had gained and use them to their fullest extent so that even though we didn't have a lot to work with, it might appear that we had more than we did. So that my home would never be an embarrassment to bring people home, but rather I would be encouraged. Any of you ladies that know my wife at all or have been to our house, you know she works very hard at decorating. It's a way of encouraging my spirit to make me feel successful. So that's part of loving your husband. The second thing I asked her about was, how would you identify the second category? And she said, in loving your husband properly requires a thankful and cheerful heart. Now, you might need personally to pray about that. You, really, you might need to pray that you would have a thankful and cheerful heart, women, so that you would be grateful for the things that you have. Because of this, guys, and I know you'll agree with me, because the woman sets the tone for the household. Would you not agree? You're reluctant to raise your hand, I know. Okay? Believe me, ladies, they know this. They know this to be true. The woman sets the tone for the household. That's why you see that little sticker out there. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay? It's true. The woman sets the tone for the household. So this one is speaking to the issue of contentment. A woman who is content with what her husband can provide is therefore reflecting a thankful heart, a cheerful heart. The reverse of it is this. If a husband constantly is sensing that his wife is unhappy with the things that he's providing, his self-respect level goes way down. He begins to think he's not accomplished enough. He hasn't achieved enough. And that brings friction into the family. Men are designed to be protectors and providers. It's the way God wired us. And so a half-committed wife to the things the husband can provide says something very strong to the husband that she's not all in. She's not completely into this, and he can certainly tell. And so the love language begins to break down. In a very recent survey that was done among school-aged children, a question was asked. I want you to hear specifically the question. What one thing would you like to see in your home that would make you a happier person? Overwhelmingly, over 90% of the children in the United States responded this way, that they would see a demonstration of visible love in their home among their parents. Are your children watching? So if the world's watching and the church is watching, Your family is watching as well. And so no wonder, he said, teach them, encourage them to love their husbands. And then to do this very natural thing, to love their children. Because ladies, men, we will stand before God one day and give an accounting for the things that he's asked us to steward. 
the things he's blessed us with. So we're going to account for how we stewarded over our household. So encourage them to love their children. I'm going to come back to that, come back to that in just a minute. All these characteristics speak to one thing, ladies. They speak to your husband having such a respect level in your household that the community around you is watching, and their respect level for that man goes up if a woman exalts her husband. This is the way Scripture refers to this specifically in Proverbs 12.4. Look with me on the screen. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness to his bones. This is the way my wife summed up that verse. Although a good woman can lift up a poor husband, a good man cannot make up for the qualities lacking in the behavior of a poor wife. You get that? I have an aunt and my mom who both had very ungodly husbands, my dad and my uncle, who lived far out on the edge like wild men. And back in the early 1970s, my mom and my aunt had prayed for so long for my uncle and my dad, they eventually radically came to Christ. A life transformation because those godly women lifted up their husbands. But it's very difficult for a godly man to lift up a poor wife. So that's why Proverbs, Solomon wrote what he wrote. She brings him shame and rottenness to his bones. Verse 5, this is what they're instructed to do. Instruct the young women to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We looked at that word sensible earlier, and it's, it's the word sophron again. You'll still see the definition up there. To be safe and sound in mind, self-controlled as to your opinions or your passions, ladies. To be discreet. Now, it says the word pure. Pure in what you personally feed your mind. Can we say reality TV? Internet content? What about the magazines that come into your home? What about those soap operas that you watch that you think no one knows about? What is it feeding into your mind? So it says that you're the guard over your house in this next word, the workers at home. Let's look at the literal definition for this, workers at home. I hate this word. Oiki something, all right? Look at the definition. A stayer at home domestically, a good housekeeper, a keeper at home. Now, that's the Greek definition for it, but that's not complete enough. That's not the entitled description. Think back to the time of the Garden of Eden. Adam is placed in the garden. In Genesis, you see that God gave him very specific directive. He said, Adam, you are to be the keeper of the garden. The word in Hebrew for keeper is shamar. And it means one who will build a hedge about, as with thorns. Adam was given the responsibility to be the defender, the keeper of the garden, the caretaker. That's why he was also complicit in the sin that Eve committed, because he allowed sin to come into the garden. He didn't refute Satan's temptation. He allowed it to enter by buying into it himself. He wasn't a good guard over the garden. So we've got this word associated from the Hebrew Old Testament Shamar, associated with this word from the Greek, and they both mean the same thing, ladies. You are to be a guard around your home. To be the keeper of your home means that you've got a gate around it, and you're controlling what comes in and what goes out. 
When your husband isn't there, how are you going to guard it if you're also not there? That's why Paul wrote this. And remember, we're talking to young moms with little children. This doesn't necessarily apply to saying you can never go to work. That's not what I'm implying here. We've got moms who have raised their children and they've found part-time jobs while their kids are in school, but they're the keepers of the home while the kids are there and they're guarding around it so that the man is free to do what he's been called to do. So she's, according to Bible, to the Bible, she's a keeper of the home. She's gating around it and guarding it. The next word that's used is the word kind. And you see it's used of Jesus a lot, but Paul wrote specifically to the Ephesians about it. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Be kind to one, to each other, one another is considerate. You're being very considerate of those around you and sympathetic. Now, here comes the one that's the hardest in the church today. It says literally, being subject to their own husbands. How many of you struggle with that? It's okay. Just raise your hand if you actually struggle with that definition. A few of you? Okay. Let's look at what the actual definition is for this when it says, be subject to your own husbands. First of all, I'll be really clear from the Bible, it does not mean you're a doormat. That is not what it's saying. It's not that you're the slave of the husband. You are the treasure of your husband, ladies. You are the gift. God gave Eve to Adam as a gift, as a complement to his life, to be a helpmeet. This means that that's a voluntary submission of your will. When you're subject to your husband, it means you've got free will, but you choose to be under his authority because God made man the head of the home. Ultimately, what it's saying is you're subject to God because God put this order in place. God established the order. This is his word, not man's words. And so he's saying literally, I put man over the home. He's got this responsibility. He better live up to it. But ladies, you're in submission to his authority. You're subject to him. But don't you dare forget, men, she is the queen of the home. And you are to value her and lift her up. And this takes a very strong woman. This takes a very strong woman to be completely and fully in submission, to be subject. But God reminded us that men and women are equal in his eyes in this authority complex we have within the home. We see that God made man the head of the home, but in his eyes, we're all equal in salvation. Look with me on the screen, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you know how revolutionary that was to the first century church? Women were treated like furniture at this time. To be elevated to the degree where man and women are equal in the eyes of Christ Jesus was unheard of at this period of time. And so in the church, we understand we're all one. It's just that God has put a structure in place so that things will work well. Why? So that the world would look and say, wow, that's a fragrant aroma. What a life change has taken place in that community. They look good. So I asked this question again. Why remind women to do what should be natural, according to what Scripture shows here? Because this type of selfless, sacrificial love is incredibly hard. And so encourage them to be lovers of their husband and to be lovers of their children. In its fullest expression, this love that we're speaking of is extremely demanding. It's incredibly hard for a wife and a mom to fulfill these kind of obligations because this type of love has no limits. 
It has no conditions upon it. She's the protector and the keeper out of the bad television programs, the bad internet content. And she's always thinking ahead, what are my husband's needs? Why is all this done? Look at the next phrase. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Is that not a great motive? If that's not a great enough motive for you, look at the definition. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but I want you to look very closely if you have your Bibles and circle the word dishonored. And then right next to it, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, the word blaspheme. The Greek word here is blasphemeo. It means literally, ladies, if you're not adhering to the things that God is calling you to, these high standards, there's a chance that the Word of God could be blasphemed because things won't properly fit and work together. Unbelievers, those who are far away from God, evaluate the effectiveness of your Christian walk based on how you live out your beliefs, not based on your theology. Would you agree with that? Those who are watching us would say that I'm going to evaluate the genuineness of your faith more by how you live than by what your theology is. They're constantly watching you. God knows the truth of this word, and that's why he said, my word could be blasphemed if you don't do these things. So let's move on to the last two verses. Verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. (laughs) Now, do you get this? All that instruction that he gave to the older men and to the older women and to the younger women, he's giving guys one thing. (laughs) Can you focus on this, guys? I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. Urge the young men to be sensible. Really brief but comprehensive. Encourage them, Titus. Now, Titus had an advantage because he was a young man. He's in his early 30s, so he can speak to the other young men. And this word that's used is parakaleo. It's the same word that's used to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, I'm going to send you a comforter to come alongside you, parakaleo is literally the one who urges insistently. So I want you to urge them, Titus. I want you to come alongside them. Why? Because, well, I'll say it this way. Young men are inclined to spontaneous behavior. Is that political enough for you? Okay. It's necessary as a young man because I have been one, okay? I know it's necessary to cultivate some balance and restraint in your life. So he's urging them to be sophroneo, the word we looked at earlier, to be sensible in your life. This is the way Paul wrote to Timothy when he listed it, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This last phrase that's associated with verse 7, if you look at that, it says, in all things, that's the way it starts out, in all things should actually be part of verse 6. Young men, be sensible. I urge you to be sensible in all things. So it's applied to Titus and it's applied to the young men because you're passionate, you're ambitious, you're very determined, but you're also impulsive and at times arrogant. And so Paul's saying, rein it in, man. Keep your head focused in the game. Control the activities of your mind. Why? So that you're attractive. So that the world will look at you and say, that guy's bringing it together. This requires something beyond yourself. That's why Scripture says it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23, 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, self-control that requires the Spirit working within you to bring things in. And with the Holy Spirit's help, you can do that. Verse 7, this is how it ends up. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified. You know that Paul wrote wrote to Titus more about being an example than he did about being a preacher? That was Titus's job on the island, to be a preacher of the word. But he's saying, I want you to be a tupos, Titus. Look with me on the screen at the definition for this word example. Tupos, example, a pattern, a type or impression of a die, mark of a blow. So when you took metal or you gave a job to a metal worker, a blacksmith in a village, and you asked them to construct something for you, they would put their signature on it when they were done, whether it was a hinge or a bridle, and they would take a mallet and strike it and make a die mark on it, a tupos, an example, saying, this is the imprint of God upon your life, Titus. When Jesus died and the disciples were gathered together in the room, everyone saw it except who? Thomas. Thomas said to the others, unless I see the two posts in his hands, I will not believe that he has risen from the dead. It's the imprint, the mark that's on your life. So literally, you're holding your life alongside others to say, I am an example. And with this, Titus was to confront those who were on the island saying, this is what an example looks like. You are to confront those in a loving way with what the example of Christ looks like in your life, with purity in doctrine. So verse 8, sound in speech which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. There's that word hygiano again, hygiene. You got sound, healthy, life-giving doctrine you're speaking into their life. In your conversation, church, Everything you do, day by day, day in and day out, this isn't preaching, this is talking about that which you talk about in the mall. When you go to work, healthy, life-giving, hygiano, sound in your speech. Why? In order that, why are these high standards there, older men, older women, younger women, younger men? In order that the opponent may be put to shame, the critics of the church will be put to shame. Who is that? In chapter 1, he talked about it. Specifically, those are the ones who were rebellious men, the empty talkers, the deceivers. Here's how I'm going to end it. There is no marketing gimmick in the world that will call people to true repentance and to Christ. There's no mailer you can send out to people's boxes. You can invite them to know about Christ. But a marketing gimmick in itself won't work. Those are the strategies of men. You are the living witness. You are the representation of the power of Christ at work in your life. That's what Titus understood now as a result of this writing. You're the example on the island called Lansing. And so therefore, as that example, you're being watched. And therefore, you need to be the example that the world can look at and say, that's what transformation looks like. How can I know more? Pretty convicting stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a very high bar. 
Let me pray with you right now, okay? Father, we believe that the things that we've looked at are, are life-giving, first of all, and not to put us in bondage, but rather that we would achieve the ultimate purpose you have in store for us. So, Father, I would ask as a pastor of this flock, but for each man and woman and student and child in this room, as you keep us from the, the desire to lower the bar, but rather that the bar would be so high that we would strive for it, as opposed to saying, I can't do it. Call us to it, Father, through the work of your Spirit. Thank you for these teachings that you've given us with this writing from Paul to Titus. It's, it is life-giving and it inspires us, but it calls us to a high standard that we can't achieve on our own. Many of us, Father, would say, I've screwed up too much, and that's why we need your grace and mercy. Your grace and mercy, Father, to help us forget those failures of the past, but to strive for the high standard you've given us so that we might be a fragrant aroma and that the world would be attracted to this thing called Christ-following. In its truest sense, Father, I ask that you be at work among us to be a true biblical community. So as these men and women and students and children go out to take on this week, that they feel infused with your power and they walk boldly to represent your kingdom. Father, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week.